And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virtual Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo, and it's great to be with you today. Yes, rocking and roll through the week in apologetics, learning how to explain and defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And, indeed, you got a great show in store for us. We have Carl Keating, the guy who started the modern Catholic apologetics movement, especially here in America as you know, uh, Carl is a uh, bookworm like me, and uh, that's just part of the trade. If you're going to be defending the faith, you you need to be up on the literature, and it's always good to uh, to learn the faith deeply and also learn from other people who would defend the faith. And um, that's why I'm I'm so happy that we've been doing this ongoing series with Carl, where we talk about Catholic apologetic classics. You know, there are so many really great works out there um, that beautifully illustrate some uh, lines of defense for the Catholic faith that unfortunately are just sitting on bookshelves, gathering dust. In fact, they might even be sitting on your own bookshelf, uh, <laughs> gathering dust. And so uh, the series is, is uh, my little attempt and Carl's attempt to light a fire under you to, yeah, Blow the dust off these classics and take a look at them because there's gold in them, Dar Hills, as you know the the westerns used to say. There, there's apologetics gold in some of these older works, and unfortunately, because of their older works and they're generally uh, viewed as being superseded by newer works, and, and there are certainly some really great stuff uh, rolling off the press. Nevertheless. You know, the classics are classics because they uh, represent not only uh, some great evidence, great lines of thought, but they're also often articulated very well and lucid. And we could always learn those things as well. So what is the classic apologetic work that we're going to look at? Well, this was actually a book I love, and I would definitely put it on my list of um, one of the most important apologetic works that I've ever read. Uh, it's not an easy read, though, and it isn't very elegant and articulate. <laughs> but nevertheless, the thoughts and the way he goes about arguing in this book, I think, is a great example of how we ought to be arguing and using and defending the faith, I should say. And uh, so that is Louis Bouillet's Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. Fantastic book. Lots of interesting insights. And like I said, I think uh, Louis Bouillet blazed the, the the way for how modern Catholic apologetics is today. It's not stock arguments that make sense to Catholics. He goes in and he um, tries to pick out what's good within Protestant thought and then shows how Protestantism fails to bring about whatever good it was trying to seek through its Protestantism. And ironically, the best stuff that they're trying to seek out, ironically, is only possible through Catholicism. 
that's a great, great, uh, great, great way to uh, articulate the faith. So that's what we're going to talk about. We have Carl Keating come up on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about this classic apologetic work. On this side of the break, we're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Appeal to the Stone. Kind of cryptic name for a fallacy, but that is generally what it's called. And also want to meet an early church father. And uh, probably also, likewise, pretty obscure. It is Quadratus. Quadratus, who... Uh, we have extremely little from Quadratus, but the little that we have, in my humble opinion, in terms of apologetics value, is gold. And uh, I'm going to explain why in a few seconds. But before I do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Apologetics Dojo, all of you listening on radio around the country. And, of course, live stream people. Hi. How you doing? Thank you for tuning in. And also, of course, our podcast peeps out there listening in the Internet, perhaps listening in the future. Welcome from the past and welcome aboard. Um, yeah. So, uh, yes, you can uh, get uh, all the episodes of Hands-On Apologetics, or I think a vast majority of them, is available, archived as podcast and distributed out there. And the way to do it is through either our handy-dandy phone app or our flagship website, which is virtualmostpowerfulradio.org. That is the place to go. And uh, you can listen to Carl Keating. In fact, you could listen or uh, watch all the episodes we had with Carl and all the classic apologetic works that we've gone over in the last year or so. So... Uh, check it out, folks. Very powerful instrument. By the way, you can download it. You can share it with friends and and pass the word around about this program. If you if you enjoy this program, tell your friends about it. Uh, the more the merrier. And uh, we'd love to have them on board. And it also helps our mission to get this information into the hands of people. So uh, that's uh, that. Also, if you'd like to contact me, the official Dojo mailbox is... Questions at handsonapologetics.com. That's the way to get a hold of me, folks. Questions at handsonapologetics.com. Like I said, I, I get emails. Sometimes I don't recognize where I'm getting the emails from. And uh, that always worries me because maybe somebody thinks they're sending them an email when actually it doesn't reach me. So uh, the way to do that, is the the official way and that is questions at hands on apologetics.com it comes in straight into my inbox and i do try to answer it as quickly as i possibly can um also enjoy your guest suggestions and i'm working on them i know some of you have already emailed me with some guest suggestions very good suggestions i'm checking them out so uh we'll see we'll see what happens all right now, got all that out of the way. Why don't we go to the Finding the Fallacy for today, which is the Appeal to the Stone. Very weird name for a fallacy. It is a logical fallacy that dismisses an argument as untrue or absurd. Dismissal is made by stating or reiterating that the argument is absurd without providing further argumentation. Uh, okay, so that's pretty much it. <laughs> It just dis dismisses something as absurd. And I, if I remember correctly, I think uh, 
the name the appeal to the stone uh comes from um johnson who was trying to uh, somebody asked him what he thought about a particular idealist view of uh the world and he kicked the stone he says thus i prove him false you know i prove it false because he kicked the stone he felt the pain reality exists it's not just at all an ideal and that's taken to mean it's just so flat out absurd we don't need to uh consider it i'm I'm not sure if that's exactly a good match but nevertheless that gives you an idea of this fallacy and uh that's our finding of the fallacy for today the appeal to stone all right let's meet our early church father for today somewhat obscure i would guess not a lot of people know about him his name is guadratus and as usual with many of our early church fathers we have no information whatsoever beyond that which is found in Eusebius' church history, where he says when Trajan had reigned for 19 and one-half years, Aurelius Hadrian succeeded to the sovereignty, and it was to him that Quadratus addressed the treaties, uh, comprising an apology for our religion, because some wicked men were attempting to trouble us, and is still extant, and in the hands of many of the brethren, and in fact, we ourselves have a copy, for it can be seen the clear proof of his intellect and his apostolic orthodoxy. Now, since Hadrian ruled from 117 to 138 AD, we have a rather narrow span of years for the dating of the work, yet uh, it may be dated even closer because Quadratus was a native of Asia Minor, and possibly he's the same Quadratus mentioned elsewhere in Eusebius as a disciple of the Apostles. Hadrian visited Asia Minor in 123-124 AD, and again in 129 AD. No doubt it was during one of these two visits that Quadratus's apology was presented to him. While the identification of Quadratus, the uh, apologete of Asia Minor, uh, with Quadratus, the apostolic disciple of Asia Minor, is far from certain. Tradition makes Quadratus, the apologete, an apostolic father, and we may continue to regard him as such. Uh, He must not, however, be identified with another Quadratus mentioned in Eusebius, known as St. Quadratus, the bishop of Athens, who lived uh, around AD 161-180. Okay, so, like I said, we don't have a lot from him, but what we do have is pretty important. So the Apology to Hadrian, again, written about AD 123 or 129, uh, says this, and uh, Eusebius quotes him. He reveals an early date in which he lived and relates the following, which is in his own words. Now he quotes Quadratus. The words of the Savior were ever present, for they were true. Those who were cured and those who were raised from the dead were seen not only while being cured or while being raised, but they ever they were ever present, not only while our Savior dwelt among us, but also for a considerable time after he had departed. In fact, some of them have survived to our own time. And that's very important because it shows pretty much the end date of living memory of uh, uh, the early church fathers in regard to our Lord. And that's Quadratus, our early church father, coming up next. Carl Keating, stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. And we're going to be talking about classic Catholic apologetic works. And to help us do that, we have Carl Keating with us. Carl, as you know, is the founder of Catholic Answers. And he himself is the author of several Catholic apologetic classics, such as Catholicism Fundamentalism, Debating Catholicism Series, Book for Life, No Apology, and many others. Uh, currently is retired and still writing, not only in apologetics, but also in other uh, genres such as religion, literature, outdoors, self-publishing, and even fiction. And uh, you can check out all his great stuff at carlkeating.com. And Carl, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, great to be with you as always. Yeah, so how is life in sunny Southern California? <laughs> well, it is sunny at the moment, and uh, for us, it's a chilly morning. It got down almost to freezing, where in oh, wow. parts of the country today, it won't get that high during the day. <laughs> so, right. so, of course, we feel blessed. I was just thinking before the show began that I think our record low historically in San Diego was something like 26 degrees positive 26 degrees. Wow. Where there are parts of the country, maybe North Dakota, for example, where it could go weeks on end in the winter and it doesn't get that high. You know? Yeah. So right. we're, we're, we're very much blessed here. I'm doing fine. I'm, uh, as I think you know, I'm in the midst of the launch of a new book, and so I'm busy with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, things are basically good. Yeah, good, good, good. Um, uh, any uh, hiking trips uh, that you've done recently? Uh, not since I was in Grand Canyon in October, where uh, I was able to accomplish a hike I'd long wanted to do, which which is to complete a route that included the toughest trail there. So I, I did that. Okay. I will never go on that trail again. It was it was a monster, <laughs> but at wow. least I've done it. Okay, so that that was good, and uh, I just got. Uh, a permit for another hike in Grand Canyon elsewhere, and the uh, uh, ranger who sent me the emails advised me, uh, you no longer are able to get to your trailhead by passing through this Indian reservation because they've closed it due for COVID concerns. Mm-hmm. So you have to park seven miles further away from the trailhead. So... So here was a hike I was wanting to do. I had done it maybe 15 years ago. I'd have to hike seven miles just to get to the trailhead and then be down <laughs> beneath the room for several days. And then at the end, seven miles back to my vehicle. No, I don't think so, I said to myself. <laughs> That's, the, the, the hike to and from the uh, trailhead is longer than the hike itself. Yeah, so, right. That's know. like three hikes in one. Really? And, and you know, each, each seven mile stretch would take a day because of rough country. So, mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, minor inconveniences like that, but otherwise, like I said, life is good. How are things yeah. with you? Oh, doing well. You know, surviving here in Michigan. Uh, flu is going around, so, um, yeah. you know, you have to deal with that, but that's just part of life. But, you know, the one good thing about cold weather is it gives you lots of reading time. And yeah. uh, what better way to spend your reading time is to pick up a, a classic work. And we've got a good one today, uh, one that yeah. I have to admit I haven't looked at for quite a long time. But uh, I proposed it to you. You said, yeah, it's a great book, and it's 
called The Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. It's by Louis Bouillet, who was a French theologian. Um, his years were 1913 to 2004. Mm-hmm. He was an interesting man in that uh, he's, he's known for his later work, if he's still remembered at all in Catholic circles, because he sort of has dropped from view. But he was a paratus or advisor at Vatican II, and with uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Hansers from Balthazar, and some others, he co-founded the international journal called Communio. Mm-hmm. And uh, right. the interesting thing to me about Bouillet and why this book is one that you, that you can really count on him as being a source for is that before he was a Catholic priest, he was a Lutheran minister. And he was that for some years. And uh, it was at the end of the 1930s or early 40s that uh, he converted to Catholicism and ultimately became a Catholic priest. Yeah. In fact, this book is one of my favorites of the classics. Um, And why is that? Uh, well, besides the fact that the sentences last like an entire paragraph, you know, one or two <laughs> sentences, uh, I, I just love the overall structure. I, I think it was fascinating way he went about, uh, you know, looking at the positive things that Protestants wanted to achieve and, and how that's only possible through Catholicism. I thought that was a, a genius way to approach apologetics. One of the things that I think in this book would be very instructive for Catholics who like to argue in favor of their faith, but might be a little too pugilistic about it, is that Bouillet says that a lot of the initial instincts of the original Protestant reformers were good, and they were on point, but they got sidetracked for various reasons, often because of personality issues within the Reformers themselves. But a lot of what they said was accurate, and had it had these insights not gone off track, much good could have come from these men who would have remained within the Church, and so on and so forth. But uh, in looking at people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others, Bouillet shows that so much of Christian history is, is uh, dependent I'll say contingent on human foibles, small changes that build up into large changes, misdirections, you know, coming to a path in the road, they seem equal, you take one, but it's the wrong one, and you don't backtrack to take the right one. Mm-hmm. Little things like that, where uh, Protestantism in its very first days, when it didn't perceive itself as being something that was going to separate from the true church, but was going to reform it, which is why they call themselves the Reformers. At that point, for a while, for a few moments in time, there was a chance for it to be a real positive impact on the church. But it didn't end up that way. And it repeatedly did not end up that way, whether the Reformer was Calvin or Luther or Zwingli or somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, so, it, you know, it was a voice within the church. Um, in some ways, you know, Luther wasn't completely wrong. Some of his critiques were on, on point, I think. Uh, would you agree with that? 
Well, very much so. I mean, there were abuses at his time. You know, we think Luther indulgences. And there were Catholic priests going around Germany preaching what indulgences are, but also some of them were selling the indulgences. Now, this was contrary to what the Church taught. It was contrary to directions from Rome. But the problem here is that Rome forbade this kind of activity, but there wasn't sufficient enforcement. So it continued. Now, not all the preachers of indulgences did that, but some did. And Luther saw that and rightly complained about it. But then he drew wrong conclusions from it. He ended up ultimately saying, well, indulgences don't exist. You can't indulge in indulgences. Okay. And so his perception at, that, at the beginning was accurate, and other people, of course, saw it too. They saw that this wasn't the right way to be talking and conveying spiritual matters, you know, looking for uh, a missionary's retirement fund by selling indulgences. Um, so Luther and, and the other early Reformers in the first days did see legitimate problems in the Church, and there were problems. You know, I, in my new book I, I, I made the comment that had the Council of Trent occurred a century earlier, and it came, you know, a few decades after the, the Reformation began. But had it occurred a century earlier and instituted the reforms that it did institute, the Protestant Reformation likely would not have occurred at all. Hmm. Uh, because Trent really took care of almost all of these areas of confusion or maladministration or misinformation. But the problem is that the Church in the early 16th century, uh, although teaching correctly, was often enough um, either bungling or incoherent in cracking down on abuses. And the abuses got people's attention, they got people mad, and they gave room for people like Luther to do their own thing. Yeah, yeah. Thank God we don't have to deal with that anymore, right? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. But, but, uh, but it's the kind of thing that you know the church has always had to be, always should have been proactive on, saying, but it's not always been the case. When we look back in earlier centuries, you know, the Arian heresy would be a good example. Uh, the church was slow to respond, and it finally did respond. It had an ecumenical council that covered the issue. But by that time, it's almost too late, and that heresy went on for more than a century after that, and got worse. So, you know, nipping things in the bud has not been the Catholic way normally to do things, and there's a logic to that. You know, sometimes it's better to let things play out and, you know, deal with the individuals affected one by one. But sometimes that doesn't something doesn't work, and the time of the Protestant Reformation was a time when the Church was slow to get moving. And, and you know, even if, had, if, if Trent had been, uh, you know, called not in the 1530s, but in the 1510s, early 1520s, it, it would have made a big difference. You know, it would not perhaps not have stopped the Reformation entirely, but it would have limited it, and the number of countries affected could have been changed, and so on and so forth. So that's been a problem. You know, we all know the sayings about Rome working slowly on whatever it is. 
and that's true. But sometimes things outside the church, or even within the church, that affect the church, operate with a speed that, to be opposed, needs to be matched with a similar speed. You know, and that's not always yeah. been the case. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it, it, and there was a big delay too from uh, the time Luther uh, nails his ninety-five thesis till the Council of Trent. So it really did give him a. a a lot of time for him to gain steam and, and change people's uh, minds and hearts. Yeah, I mean, there were decades there that uh, the propaganda for the early versions of Protestantism was able to be disseminated over wide areas. And then at the same time, you've got uh, factions of, of political nature within Germany and other countries. Remember, at this point, Germany was not a single country. It's a bunch of small princedoms. And uh, a lot of this had to do with politics plus religion. Yeah, yeah. we'll pick up on that on the other side of the break. We were chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the Catholic apologetic classic, Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. We'll be back. back. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the classic apologetic work, Louis Bouillet's Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. Right before the break, Carl, you made a really important point that I think is often missed when people think about the Protestant Reformation, is the fact that uh, if it weren't for the German princes, you know, being behind the Protestant movement, chances are Protestantism probably would have fizzled out. Throughout the centuries, there was, uh, in the 8th century, for example, the heresy of iconoclasm, the opposition to using images, statues, paintings, and whatnots of God and saints and so forth. And that heresy probably wouldn't have gone far, except for the Emperor Leo at the time got behind it, and then it persisted and got worse. So often in, in Christian history, we've seen the intrusion of a secular power using a sub-movement within the Church and pushing it in a direction that maybe it wasn't otherwise going to go, and then things got worse. And that's what we see, I think, especially with Lutheranism in the, the many German principalities. We see that uh, there seemed to be, at the political level, some rationale among some of the princelings to foster Luther's opposition to the Pope and to things coming out of Rome, because there were overarching political issues such as the Holy Roman Emperor, should he be opposed, and so how do you do that, this kind of thing. So it gets very complex, but uh, what ends up is that movements that might have gone, as you said, might have fizzled out, are given a kind of second breath when they get the sec a secular power, even if a small one, behind them. And then who knows what happens? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's but, true. Yeah, you know, in the introduction in this book, Bouguer says something I think is is um, very useful for those of us who engage in apologetics to keep in mind. You know, we often, when discussing the faith with Protestants, argue about particular doctrines and whether they can be proved or disproved or so on. 
But he, Bouyer says, if we want to convince a person of his error, it is seldom enough to refute in themselves all the false propositions he has accepted. What is more important is, by close historical and psychological inquiry, to lay bare the positive motives for which such innovations have found acceptance. Only when we have come to estimate exactly the strength and weakness of these motives will we be in a position to show those we want to convince that they are not required in the least to abandon their legitimate desires. Hmm. So, oh, when I can often think of times now when I've discussed privately or publicly some controverted doctrinal issue with a Protestant controversialist, that it's often not so much the doctrine per se that's at issue, not really. It's underlying that, why does this person accept his particular take on this doctrine, whether it's salvation or baptism or what have you? Mm -hmm. What is it that moves him to accept this moves him in a kind of psychological or almost subterranean way, uh, and with, without that underlying motivation, he w probably would not accept this erroneous belief. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind, because we can argue on one level and come out with irrefutable arguments, and the guy still won't accept them, because there's something within him, something anterior to those doctrines, that he accepts or that he bases his outlook or performance on. And if we don't understand what that is and really appeal to that, we're not going to make much headway. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, um, you know, uh, this is a terrible analogy, but if someone's drowning They'll grab onto any kind of debris that floats to help them from you know keep from drowning, even if it's not a very good flotation device. I think sometimes people are you know out of a motive, they want to achieve something good. Sometimes they'll grab on some, some pretty shaky arguments to achieve their goal, even though you know those arguments aren't very sound. So just taking away the arguments doesn't suffice. You need to help them uh, see. No, there's a better way to achieve, you know, not drowning or whatever. So it's like a real flotation device or a boat, for example. You need, you, need, you need to know what their antecedent goal or purpose is. Yeah. And then you can understand why they would adopt or argue for what in fact is something erroneous, but appears to them to be conducive to attaining their underlying goal. Uh, and, and that's something we tend to miss often as apologists. Uh, we all have done that. Mm -hmm. You know, we work easily enough at the surface. You say, oh, the guy says, I don't believe in infant baptism. Okay, then you argue the scripture on, on that. But there might be something uh, deeper in the person's approach to religion that uh, needs to be addressed. And if you can address that, then he's open to the idea that infants can be baptized. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you don't approach that, then it's just at the level of the biblical exegesis, and which you actually have to say, an argument can be made either way in good faith from what the Bible says about baptizing infants, or what it doesn't say, okay? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't say much. So, 
these are the kinds of things that Bouillet in this book tries to help, especially the Catholic reader, understand that those who are promoting the Protestant argument often will have uh, an underlying reason for that promotion that is not obvious to the Catholic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I think a lot of objections against Mary come from a motive of uh, trying to uh, preserve the uniqueness of Christ and his divinity. And so they perceive Marian doctrine as somehow, you know, infringing on that. So you could go through and try to prove Marian doctrine, but if you don't solve that problem of that she in no way impinges on Christ's uniqueness or his divinity, uh, a lot of it's going to fall on deaf ears. Yeah, you know, we've just celebrated the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Mm-hmm. And if you were a non-Christian being introduced to basic Christian doctrines, Catholic or Protestant, and you look at this, you say, okay, if you want to bolster the uniqueness of Christ, and he comes from the flesh of a woman, wouldn't you want her to be really distinguishable from any other woman to make him more distinguishable from any other man? So having Mary be immaculate would seem to be about the best you can make it as far as his origin is concerned. So an outsider, a non-Christian looking at it would say, that would seem to actually bolster arguments in favor of Christ's uniqueness rather than to undermine them. That is... Yeah arguing Mary's uh, immaculate conception, uh, her perpetual virginity, and so on. But the, interestingly, the Protestants will say, no, if you elevate her and make her much different from just any other woman in the Bible, good woman, but simply just another good woman, he, says, he thinks that way, then you're undermining Christ. So uh, I can see on the one hand, as you can, um, the motive on the Protestant side, for discounting the Marian doctrines out of a fear that they somehow undermine Christ. But I think a third party, like, like I imagine, looking at it from a non-Christian's point of view, would say, yeah, if I were making up this religion, I would make Mary as special as she possibly could to make Christ as special as he possibly could be. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, I think, how this, how this works psychologically for people. And there's a lot of psychology involved in, in uh, how one goes about uh, accepting or adopting or rejecting particular religious tenets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, th- I find it fascinating, too, because it's, uh, it is a bit mysterious, but uh, often, uh, it, you know, it, you can be either a hindrance or you can help somebody by discerning, like, which approach you should use. And I think if you can uh, say, no, these are not obstacles to what you desire, like Christ's uh, unique divinity or something like that, but actually somehow it supports it, I think you hit a home run because now they'll gravitate to those things because they want to achieve the goal of uh, preserving Christ's uniqueness or his divinity. Yeah, and so I think yeah. this is a very good example of what we talked about a few minutes ago of 
the goal of the Protestant reformers and present-day Protestants mm-hmm. over and distinct from the particular doctrinal argumentation they might make. The goal is to achieve someone's soul, preserve Christ's uniqueness, say. Mm-hmm. And so, if that's the goal, then they look at Christian doctrines and say, oh, this one proposed by Catholics doesn't seem to do that. It seems to be contrary to it, so I'll oppose that doctrine. Okay. So they've got a reason to attempt an opposition, but the reason for the opposition ultimately is a good one, to preserve Christ's uniqueness in our eyes, but they have misperceived what the extent to which or whether a particular doctrine tends to preserve or undermine that uniqueness. Uh, so, uh, you know, you and I, we each have a number of decades of doing apologetics, so we've met any number of people who uh, have, you know, we've had to try to coax along this way to see that their goal is a good goal, uh, but they're going the wrong way about trying to bolster it, because they're actually trying to undermine something or some things that, in fact, help bolster their goal, help achieve the goal, uh, rather than uh, counteract that goal. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I hear the music coming up. We'll hit pause right there. We are chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the classic apologetic work, uh, Louis Bouillet's Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. More to come right after this. Back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the classic apologetic work, Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. And uh, we're talking about uh, that there's positive motivations uh, that Protestants have. They're actually good motivations, but uh, they go about trying to support those in, in a wrong way, and that's kind of where our, we have our work cut out for us. You know, Carl, one of those is the exaltation of Scripture. That's something I think Catholics would feel very strongly about as well. But by extolling Scripture with sola scriptura, they actually undermine Scripture. You know, Bouillet brings out an interesting historical episode here that I had sort of let drop from my mind, but I think it's correct. He said when Luther was first putting such emphasis on Scripture, he was not at the same time uh, arguing against the magisterial authority of the Church. One of the problems in the Germany of his era was the Anabaptist movement, uh, which is a kind of anarchical stream of Christianity. And he was uh, arguing against those people because they didn't accept any authority with the Church or the Bible. And so to counter them, Luther put strong emphasis on the Bible as an authority in order to try to get the Anabaptists to accept, you know, at least that much authority. Well, what happens in the, in the, in the play out of this is that Luther ends up overstressing uh, the role of Scripture to the point of, you know, de-stressing or non-stressing the role of the Church as having a magisterial or teaching role. But his initial instinct uh, was that he wanted to get the Anabaptists to see that there needs to be authority, 
and they were rejecting all kind, any authority at all, hmm. other than what came out of their own minds. So, at the beginning, Luther, with his emphasis on Scripture, was doing something positive, but he let himself get carried away to the point where he ended up um, not going as far as the Anabaptists, but relegating um, authority to just one of two components, only Scripture, not Scripture plus tradition. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, that's an excellent example too. So uh, you know the motives were strong and, and laudable, but uh, but the way of achieving it ultimately frustrates Luther from achieving his end because if anything it, it undermines scripture. Uh, you know, it, it, how do you know which books belong in scripture if you don't have access to sacred tradition? How do you know the proper interpretation of scripture if you don't have access to sacred tradition, all that kind of, uh, you know, is yeah, it's kind it's of the bad aftertaste of, of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. You know, it spirals out of control. When you, you, when you see a truth and run with it without keeping in eyesight other truths that you need to run with in parallel, you can go the wrong way. And you can so focus on one truth that other truths to you become untrue. And that is sort of what happened to Luther and to Calvin, you know, in terms of not just the role of the Bible, but justification and grace and so on. They would see true things, but they got out of balance with other true things, some of which they rejected ultimately as false. You know, so you get to some obvious, uh, you know, unusual situations. For example, halfway through the book, Bouillet says that, looks at, looks at prayer within Protestantism. It says that uh, what happened is that Protestantism said that the only prayer worthy of the name is personal prayer, where each one speaks from his own heart, and therefore only says what he immediately feels. Uh, the almost inescapable Protestant mistrust of all set prayers even included the Our Father. You know, hmm. that's the most set prayer of all, is given to us by Christ in the Gospels. Yeah. But uh, you even you get to the point where any kind of set prayer for a Protestant becomes not not a real prayer, not an authentic prayer, not an efficacious prayer, but just something done by rote, which is why the, the Protestant ultimately comes to object to the form of the Mass, which consists almost all of prayers of ancient lineage, uh, including the Our Father, but prayers that, you know, are the Psalms and other things taken straight from the Bible, but they're prayers. And uh, and prefers instead a religious service that consists of hymns and and uh, sermon and so forth, but actually no set formularies of, of praying. So uh, it's curious to me that, in a way, by logic, uh, with this understanding of what prayer ought to be, the Protestant rejects using the Our Father. You know, yeah. now they don't really do that in practice, but that's the logic of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example, too, because uh, so I, I, obviously it's important to be personally engaged in prayer, not just going through it by rote. And again, Catholics, I think, would give a hearty amen to that. But uh, oh, if you so. yeah. yeah, but going to the opposite extreme of, well, then only the only, only authentic prayer is this kind of extemporaneous non-liturgical type. 
ultimately undermines prayer because our Lord himself gave us, you know, a pattern to follow in Scripture. Well, and also look at the Old Testament. We've got, a, uh, you know, the Psalms, which are each one's a prayer. Yeah. You know, but they're in fixed form, you know. Uh, I mean, every Protestant probably of, of, of seriousness has memorized the 23rd Psalm, right? But that's a fixed prayer. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Old Testament is full of fixed prayers, you know. So uh, when, you, when you argue against the fixed prayer format, you're actually going against what Scripture gives as examples, because there's almost nowhere in Scripture where spontaneous individual prayer is, is promoted or advocated. You know, you 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 define you know David and others you know you know coming out with spontaneous prayer, but what happens? They end up as Psalms, which are, which are then fixed for us uh, for, for for the future you know course of of Jewish and Christian history. Uh, so you've got uh, a curious situation here. There's so many situ- situations within Protestantism where something that had an original good impulse, yeah. uh, again, is taken in isolation and pushed to its logical or illogical end, however one may put it, and then doesn't make much sense. So, you know, when you get to the point where uh, you have to say that fixed prayer like the Our Father really shouldn't be bothered with, I think you've got good reason to reconsider whether you've got a presumption that's incorrect. Yeah. Yeah, and then it comes the other way, too, is that the prayers in the Mass, you know, the ultimate liturgical prayer, as uh, like the Sanctus comes from the prayers that are offered in heaven in Book of Revelation and Isaiah. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 but those are fixed prayers for us. Yeah. You know, they're given right. to us in the Bible. And uh, I presume that the prayers in heaven are of all different sorts. And most of them, of course, have not been recorded, never will be for us. Mm-hmm. But we do have rec- records of them, and we have incorporated them in the Mass over the centuries, but in that process they become fixed. Uh, so it's a curious thing psychologically. Uh, one has to be sort of almost not committal one way or the other. On the one end to say fixed prayers are not to be used, only spontaneous prayers really good prayer. And on the other hand, to still accept prayers like the Our Father or the, the zillion prayers that are in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, you don't even have to look at the ones that are incorporated in the Mass. Just just look throughout the books of the Old Testament, and there are fixed prayers every place. And yet, uh, you can have a mindset that says, fixed prayer, yes, but fixed prayer, no. And, right. and you know, that's, that, that's kind of mental instability uh, that eventually you're sort of forced to come off that fence one side or the other, you know. And I think what you need to do is come off on the side that says, fixed prayer, yes, doesn't mean there's not anything wrong with spontaneous prayer. That's great, too. But you don't reject either one. You accept both. And yet, uh, for whatever historical reasons, Protestantism ended up, Bouillet says, chiefly discounting fixed prayer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's... uh 
you know, it's uh, the the classic Catholic both and rather than the either or. And you know, your work with fundamentalism, uh, you've remarked uh, dozens of times how you know it's that's kind of simplistic. Just pick one side and deny the other. That's often attractive to people. It is attractive because we can get our minds around it. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, you know, it's, the physicist worries: is it a particle's speed or its position? Well, a physicist has to look at both actually to make good physics. You, you can't just say the particle's speed and forget its position, or the position forget the speed. No, he needs to look at both. And it's all the more important in religion because, you know, the the ultimate, the teleos, the the, the end of religion, is far more important than the end of physics, uh, because it's, it's an eternal destination. So, uh, nevertheless, the, you know, the human mind works in odd ways, and we just have to accept it as it is and work within its parameters. But people will hold positions. We all do to some extent that are not entirely consonant with one another. And we often don't try to reconcile them, partly because we can't, or partly because they can't be reconciled. But, you know, we're all subject to that. But here within Protestantism, B.A. points out a good number of situations, um, such as justification. Does it really make you just, or is it just God pretends that you're just and then ignores the fact that you're not changed at all? Okay. Oh, the process of justification is another one of those that if you accept the Protestant position of it, it leads to situations where you, you, you seem to be forced to reject something you otherwise accept. Like in prayer, you seem to be forced to reject the fixed prayer of the Our Father, even though you want to accept the fixed prayer of the Our Father. Yeah, 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 very good, very good. Do you know if, uh, has this book ever been reprinted? Oh, I don't know. My copy's from 1961. Um, yeah. I think it probably must have been, been been reprinted by Ignatius Press since then. So I was I'm, I would guess that it could still be found. Uh, but it's one of those books that, uh, like the author himself, has has unfortunately faded away from the the consciousness of most literate Catholics in recent years, and that's too bad because it's really quite a good book, and it has insights that born Catholics tend not to have gone through and would really appreciate. Yes, absolutely. Well, Carl, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Gary. All right. Carl Keating, uh, check out Carl's classic works at carlkeating.com. Wow, the hour is gone. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. I'll do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone.